0: from Bottom Line Technologies. Greetings and welcome to the Payments Podcast. My name is John Gaffney. I'll be your host for today's episode that will cover real-time payments. But before you tune out and say I've heard enough about this topic, I would suggest you haven't. I would suggest you've never heard real-time payments discussed in a truly global perspective. From the financial hubs of Wall Street, To Shanghai, to Canary Wharf, to the boulevards of Europe and the boondocks of Australia and Africa, the world of real-time payments is undergoing a rapid transformation. The US has just launched the FedNow Faster Payments platform. The EU is preparing a set of substantial regulations aimed at accelerating the pace of instant payments. And Great Britain is working on its new payments architecture initiative, which will be real-time driven. A lot of change in a short period of time. And here to give us a global perspective on real-time payments and some other issues, we have a very special guest today. Leo Lippis is the founder of Lippis Advisors. He's based in Berlin and has over 25 years of experience in payment systems consulting and research on all six continents. Prior to founding Lippis in 2007, he held positions in payment strategy and analysis with commercial banks, clearinghouses, and central banks. Welcome, Leo.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be here.
0: Yes, it's a pleasure to have you. Let's dive right in here. You know, I listed some of the major real-time payment initiatives, but there's a lot I didn't mention. I didn't mention New Zealand's direct payment link, India's unified payments interface. So my question to you, there's a lot going on here globally. Is there any rhyme or reason to all this change happening in so many places at the same time?
1: Yes, yes and no. So it's a lo- it's a long-term trend, I think, of payments. Real-time payments has been a long time coming. You know, you the you can trace their heritage all the way back to the 1970s, if you really want to. But when you think about modern real-time systems, they arose, you know, roughly roughly 20 years ago, in the mid 2000s. Um, you know, some of the first ones were in places like South Africa around 2004. The UK launched its uh, uh, faster payment system, and uh, a little bit later in the same decade. So these systems have been around for a while. Um, what's really, and when you when you count them up, there are about sixty of them around the world now, um, and the vast majority of those have gone live in the last ten years. And there are a number of drivers that have been that have been pushing us as a society and us as a payments industry in that direction. Some of it is you know the always on kind of mentality, the you know, always working mentality that we have, and that's that developed very strongly over the last twenty years. But it's also a, a matter of like. You know, the email takes a few seconds to be delivered. A text message takes a few seconds to be delivered. We're used to instant communication. We're used to having instant results and instant gratification. And payments has proven to be no exception to that. So there's that, okay, at the, on the technological and social side of things. There's also a number of political drivers behind, behind this, um, where now that the technology is available to do it, politicians have increasingly uh, taken note of that but take a note of these develop, these developments in certain parts of the world. Um, and I've been pushing things forward and regulators have been pushing things forward, all in the interest, I think, ge- or generally speaking, in the interest of, of consumer protection, of improving the user experience um, and, 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 and other similar uh, goals. So there are a number of drivers that, that, that sit behind this. Um, however, when you look at the details of a lot of these systems, a lot of them actually work quite differently uh, from each other. Uh, I think when I first started studying payment systems, you know, 25, 30 years ago, and then when I founded my company about 15 years ago, I thought I was going to happen upon, you know, the the ideal design for a payment system. But what you realize when you start looking at the way in which payment systems have developed all over the world is that each one of them develops within its own political environment, within its own economic environment, its own social environment, um, its own technological environment. People are starting in different places countries have different uh, priorities for their own development and the payment system is 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 shaped um, according to those goals and according to the environment in which it which it develops so on the one hand there is a rhyme or reason yeah to go to get back directly to your question there is a rhyme or reason Um, our expectations are evolving as consumers as businesses um, and payment systems are developing Uh, or or being developed, I should say, um, to respond to those changing expectations. At the same time, however, they're developing in different ways and developing different types of services based upon the environments in which they operate.
0: Now, one of those different ways is going to be in the EU. You wrote a great article early this year um, about EU regulations, which will be significant. Um, By way of background, just let me point out what the four regulations in motion are. The first one is that all payment service providers that already offer credit transfers in euros need to offer instant payments in euros. Two, user fees for instant payments should be equal to or less than standard credit transfers. Three, all PSPs should provide a confirmation of payee-like name checking service. And four, all PSPs should conduct daily checks of their clients against EU sanction lists. So Leo, two part question. Any intel about the timing of these regulations? And two, do you think they'll be effective in accelerating instant payments on the continent?
1: Hmm. Very interesting question. So in terms of the timing, um, the, the regulation you're referring to, uh, which has these four different parts, is expected to be uh, passed by the European Commission um, uh, this year. Um, so the, the word on the street has been October, November, um, and it will take effect one year later. So call it Q4 2024. So that anybody who is currently offering credit transfers needs to be prepared to offer credit transfer instant payments and instant credit transfers by the end of next year. Um, the pricing uh, regulation would take place at the same time, or take effect at the same time, as well as the other uh, the other services and of those. The most difficult to to offer in such a short period of time is probably the confirmation of payee service at a pan-European level. Right now, uh, within Europe, we do have. Um, National solutions for dealing with confirmation of PE uh, in some countries, um, in other countries, uh, uh, and, and there's also in other countries there either are are limited solutions or partial solutions, or in some cases there are none. Um, but actually harmonizing that into a single European system that's interoperable across the EU, I think will will be will be quite quite challenging. Um, now. You're, the second part of your question is whether or not this will increase reachability and, and uh, or whether, or sorry, whether or not this will incre- increase adoption. We've done a number of studies about what it is that drives instant payment adoption uh, ar- around the world. And, what, and this actually sort of pulls two, two important levers. Um, one is availability and reachability, right? So if I want to send an instant payment, I need to know that the receiver can receive the instant payment, otherwise I'm not gonna bother, right? Um, I know that the way in which, for example, my bank, uh, in Germany deals with that now is that when I enter the IBAN, so the, the account number of the recipient, right, it automatically checks a list that says, is this bank reachable or not? And then it highlights a radio button and, you know, in my app, uh, that I can then flip it to an instant payment if I want to, um, now that's one way of dealing with it, but you know, I'm not. I'm probably half the time I don't really look, right? So, that, but if it if it simply is available and things are being sent to, by default as an instant payment, that would be a whole a whole lot better, a whole lot easier, and certainly would drive adoption. And that's one of the things we see, incidentally, is that when there's a certain threshold of reachability, um, that somewhere around 92, 93 percent of bank accounts. That when that many bank accounts are reachable using an instant payment, that's when adoption seems to take off. The second lever that's being pulled here is on pricing. So I mentioned, you know, my bank here in Germany, right? You know, it, it gives me the option of sending a real-time payment, but right now they still charge me extra for it. It's, so they consider it to be a premium service. And there's a very clear correlation, okay, uh, across many different countries between pricing and, and adoption of a payment service. That as soon as you charge uh, the user uh, more for a particular service, that demand is very elastic. Um, and in fact. The more you charge for it, the 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 lower adoption has to be. So they're pulling two important levers here, okay, to drive adoption. The other two, I think won't won't have quite as big an impact. Um, the sanction screening matter is really an operational matter for the banks. It lowers their cost that it it makes it so that instant payments can be done more efficiently um, uh, and and perhaps even faster than they are today. Um, but it's more of an operational issue um, for the for the for the for the banks involved. And then last but not least the confirmation of payee service again helpful but largely a fraud prevention measure um rather than than one that's going to drive adoption in its own right um so that's my, my reading of the situation um there there's there is for, for the record just to be uh there's another proposed uh, important regulation called the psd3 the payment services directive uh the third iteration of that we had our first one back in the late 2000s, a second iteration around 2015-16, if I recall correctly, um, and this is the third one, which is really being uh, intending to drive more innovation and competition into the payments market in Europe uh, by giving non-banks more leeway uh, to, uh, to 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 um, offer payment services directly to consumers, to access bank accounts using open banking and so on and so forth. This is what the previous payment services directives have been aimed at and what the next one will be doing as well. Now that's a slightly different beast. Um, uh, it probably won't be approved by the European Parliament until um, until next year at the earliest. Um, and then it, because of the nature of European law and European legislative process, that is a directive rather than a regulation, which means that then needs to be transposed into national law across all the member states of the EU, um, which inevitably takes, uh, takes longer and, and make, makes the process more complicated. So that, I don't think that, that new directive, the Payment Services Directive 3, won't take effect before 2026 at the earliest.
0: Okay, interesting. Nothing easy, right? Um, so one of the things I know that you're kind of excited about is, is some of the value-added services that ride along with real-time payments. Can you run a couple of those down for us and tell us why they're going to be important?
1: Sure. So probably the most important one that we see uh, across a, a number of different countries is what we call a proxy service um, or a, 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 a way of linking together a proxy, like a telephone number or an email address, to an underlying bank account and and and, and shortcode a routing number, um, so a number of countries have this. In the U.S., you have it with Zelle. Um, in you know in France, it's called Paylib. In uh, um, in the Netherlands, it's Tiki. In uh, and so on and so on. There, you, you, there there are a lot of them all over the world. In uh, in South Africa, it's Payshop, uh, and so on and so forth. There are lots of lots of them all over the world. And what they what they really do is they promote P 2 P payments, so person to person payments. So that if I, for example, want to pay a, a micro business or you and I go out for lunch, we want to split the bill is another classic example. I want to pay my babysitter. I want to pay uh, the, my lawn service. I want to pay, you know, whatever, a, 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 typically a low value payment. Um, I don't necessarily have a person's bank account number and they may not even want to give it to me, but I probably have their phone number, even of casual acquaintances. We're used to giving our phone numbers to strangers. We're not used to giving people our bank account numbers so therefore what you what the what what can be offered is a proxy service okay and that tends to really drive adoption of p2p payments nicely we've seen a number of other overlay services develop uh, in particular in countries like uh, india like brazil um, where they they've combined the real-time payment service with an open banking layer um, so that non-banks and third parties can develop payment services over the top of that and what we've seen for example within Indian, one interesting example, has been a remittance service for mostly for domestic remittances. But there are even some that are aimed at Indian expats uh, who live and work abroad, who need to send money back to their families. Um, And so that's being done through um, the Indian instant payment system, which is really cool. Um, We also have other um, other interesting overlay services uh, that are aimed, for example, at point of sale payments. Um, where, you, for example, you've integrated a, a QR code uh, at the point of sale into the in, into, into the into the instant payment system, so that a payment can be made directly from the from the user's bank account to the merchant's bank account, mm-hmm. um, and so it's a, again it's an entirely different model for how a point of sale um, payment could be made, and, and 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 so on. So these are, I think, some of the more, some of the more interesting ones that are coming up. Um, And there are uh, there are lots of others. I mean, the list the list is really, really long.
0: Well, I'm glad you went through the ones that you went through. That's that was was enlightening. Thank you. Um, You know, I know you guys do some great research at Lipis Advisors. Um, We recently wrapped our flagship research um, initiative, which is called the Business Payments Barometer. And it had some interesting findings in it. One of them, Great Britain being well ahead of the curve when it comes to corporate instant payments. Um, in fact, if the large enterprises keep their promise, um, according to the barometer, we could see 91% coverage in the next year or two um, in Great Britain. In the US, it looks like an average of about 66% usage. But the issue here, I think, is B2B payments. In, in your opinion, what's it going to take to get some critical mass for real time rails
1: for B2B payments? Well, I think there are there are two different issues that we need to we need to separate here. One is on the accounts payable side; the other ones on the accounts receivable side. So, on on the payable side of things, right? For for B two B payments, um, the, the, probably the most important thing is 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 integration with ERP and accounting software vendors. Um, you know the the way the way these things work now is that is that you know an accounts payable uh, entry will have to go through multiple approvals, and then the payment software. Right, or the payment management software, or the ERP software, um, dumps it all into a file, and that gets sent off to a bank, right? And that may happen once a day, once maybe once an hour. You know, if it's more frequent you know, but it's 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 a period it's a periodic process. But in order to send a real time payment, right, it's got to be communicating in real time. So you almost need almost an API layer at the bank for for allowing a corporate customer to initiate payments. It could also be message based, um, but it has to be it has to be integrated, okay, in a way that it's not today. Right now, these are file-based systems, okay, um, typically, that are sometimes even running in batch processes. I mean, the, the ERP system, not the payment system, although the payment system is running that way too. Um, but typically, um, the, the, the payment management software is, is, is dealing with this in, in, on batches or in periodic, periodic chunks of time. So that, I think, is the, probably the most important thing on the payable side of things. Um, there's then, of course, there's a whole workflow that needs to be built around that and workflows that need to be changed within companies to, to be able to, to manage that process. And then the, on the receivable side, receiving a real-time payment, again, you also need that integration layer, but more perhaps, and perhaps more importantly, is the whole uh, sort of internal accounting system at the corporate that needs to be revised to reflect that. So take, if we take a simple example of me paying, I don't know, my, uh, uh, my bill at the last minute, right there's no sense in me paying my telephone company right uh my bill at the last minute if they can't post it to my account within the phone company in real time also so the difference there of a payment taking a few hours or a payment going instantly needs to be reflected um in it needs to be reflected in the in 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 the own accounting system within the company so that's on the receivable side so um, these problems, typically, you know, w- the way in which we've seen this happen with other payment systems, it takes simply a, a, a generational upgrade, right, for these things to, to happen, and it t- takes a few years. Um, one of the interesting things that drove uh, uh, volume in the UK in the early years, right, was that they targeted these kind of B two B use cases, um, and the and the technology suppliers for the for the for the UK corporates updated their software relatively quickly to be able to do that. Um, in larger markets, though, that gets more complicated um and 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 again those the the updates on the receivables and 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 payable side are, are super important um what what you could imagine easing this a little bit would be things like overlay services right we were talking about just before you could link these together we've seen some overlays in in some countries that have targeted b2b payments okay by providing that kind of integration layer um for uh for software providers so it's been a really cool trend that we've seen in a couple of places, but it's not, it's, it hasn't been commonplace. Let's talk Cyboss.
0: Starts September 18th, the gathering of the clan, the international banking clan. Uh, yes, um, cross-border payments are sure to be in the spotlight. In your opinion, Leo, what are some of the obstacles that still hold back cross-border payments, even real-time cross-border payments, and how can we overcome them?
1: Well, I think... It's, it's it's another really good question. Um, when I look at the way, what what's holding up cross-border payments today? I mean, one of the things that we've seen, we've seen developments over a number of years now to make cross-border payments faster, uh, cheaper, uh, to make cross-border payments more transparent uh, and so on. Initiatives like Swift GPI, Swift Go, um, initiatives like IXB between the clearinghouse and EBA clearing to link up... Um, uh, their own real time payment systems to each other. Um, oftentimes what still causes delays are, are two, I think two major issues. One is compliance. Um, cross border payments still have a much, much heavier compliance burden than domestic payments do and retooling domestic payment systems to be able to handle the, the domestic leg of a cross border payment in a, in an automated fashion is often, uh, time consuming. Um, uh, and so, therefore, people have tended to fall back on, on tried, and, tried and true methods. Um, I see that as continuing to evolve, though. Um, there There is a significant movement toward the regionalization of payment systems more broadly. There's a significant movement toward um, creating linkages between national payment systems to be able to do this. We're seeing this not just with the euro and U.S. dollar corridor. We're seeing it in Southeast Asia with... with uh, when, in, in ASEAN and the, and the Asian Payments Network, we're seeing it across Southern Africa in, with the South uh, the Southern African Development Community, SADC, and, and their system TCIB, and elsewhere. So those are just uh, just to name a few examples. Um, what, what can slow these things down, though, are some of the, the economics of the systems. Though this is the, this is the second major thing. So I talk about compliance. The second major thing are the economics, and um, and there's there's no doubt that there are major uh, banks that make money out of the current system um, and, and so uh, by inventing new methods or by circumventing that um, you're going to come up against some some forces um, uh, that are going to try to, how should I say, slow down that that evolution, slow down that natural evolution. Um, and and so the economics of the existing system lead the the, the players that, co- that currently control those flows to have a vested interest in maintaining that system. Now that said, um, I don't believe the, the, that, that 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 it's an irresistible. I, I do believe that it's an irresistible tide um, that we're tending toward. Um, once we get the compliance issue solved, the economic issues will 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 soon fall. will we'll soon follow, and um what we're going to see though is um faster cheaper better cross-border services so one that comes to mind is one of my colleagues here in berlin uh grew up in the united states and his father was sending him some money and he used uh, call it a cross-border remittance service right um that you know used open banking to check the balance in the father's account so that they knew that he was good that, 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 that the person making the payment was good for the money. They then did basically an, an, an on us transfer on their own books to their European entity, dropped it into the European real-time system, and the money was posted, okay, in Europe within seconds to yeah. seconds of the money being sent. That is a fantastic user experience, okay? And and my colleague tells the story that the money was posted to his account and he was notified by his bank that the money was in his account faster than his father's voice could be transmitted over WhatsApp. Not bad. Not bad at all.
0: So, you know, one of the other things that uh, will probably be discussed to what kind of end, we're not really sure, but CBDCs will certainly be discussed at Cyboss. How would you counsel banks to look at the potential for CBDCs, especially as a cross-border um, vehicle? Do you think there'll be a factor over the next one to three years?
1: So over the next one to three years. So I mean, it's, it's interesting you put a, t- a time limitation on that. Actually, makes it a lot easier to answer the question. I think the the answer there is let's. Let me, I'm going to deal with this in two different ways. So I think that um, let's talk first about wholesale CBDCs. So that means using CBDCs for interbank settlement, right? Um, or some kind of central bank token for 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 for, for, for cross border settlement. There, I think. It, it may it may well have an important role to play. I don't believe, on the retail side, I'll get there in a moment, that it, it will have much role to play. Um, but I'll get there in a minute. On the wholesale side, it's that's largely an efficiency play. The real question is, you know, this is not something that users are going to interact with. It's something that banks would use to settle among each others. The question is, is that more efficient than current methods of settlement that are being used? Uh, and there's a that's a pure efficiency play. It's a pure business case that you make for it or you don't. Um, so there's a pure business decision. If there's a way to save money by doing it that way, um, then it will happen. Um, the other issue is retail CBDCs. And so there, I, I don't believe that we're going to see much movement in the next one to three, certainly not in the next one to three years, and even longer term. I think that cross-border retail CBDCs um, are going to, there's a long way for us to go before we get there, if, if we ever are going to get there um and there are a variety of reasons for that i think so imagine that again I've, I'm, I'm paying you um you know my digital with my digital euros right and you're sitting in the united states and you receive digital euros well what are you going to do with them Where, how are you going to hold them um how are you going to exchange them for uh either real euros or whatever whatever fiat euros or, or how are you going to exchange them for digital dollars um, how are you going to spend them? Who's going to convert them for? You have all these questions that need to be answered. Um, um, you, and so using this in a cross-border environment, I think, is exceedingly difficult. Even in a, in a, in a domestic environment, it's difficult enough. Um, and we see, of course, the amount of effort that the European Union and the ECB are putting into the, the digital euro strategy, which I do believe is going to happen here in Europe, um, as a way of driving you know, additional cash out of the market, uh, or tra- traditional cash out of the market um, as a way of driving um, more choice in making online payments. I can see all those arguments. I get that. But then using that in a, in a retail environment, doesn't, it's not obvious to me how that's going, going to work. And, and certainly there are too, too many open questions, I think, for making that happen in the next one to three years.
0: Leo, suppose you had the closing keynote at Cybos. Give us three to five things you'd highlight in that speech.
1: The first one is one that I just, I just spoke about. I'd say it's CBDCs. Um, we need to watch the space carefully because if it's done poorly, if CBDCs are done poorly, they really have the potential to undermine the payments industry. But if they're done well, right, they can prove to be a real complement, a, a I think, to, uh, uh, to the choices that are available for consumers, the choices that are available for businesses. And ultimately, again, if done well, uh, could provide new sources of revenue for lots of players uh, around the industry. Um, So there, I think it's one key trend to watch. Um, And of course, it's been one of the hottest topics over the last year or two, and I think it will continue to be an important topic over the next year or two. The next thing I'd say is is, um, fraud, is another key thing to watch. Uh, I hope you'll forgive me for not uh, for not having this structured as if it were a keynote at Cybos, but rather it's, it's a, right now it feels like it's a few random thoughts that ultimately would be structured very well for a nice keynote. But I think, I think fraud is also a really great, uh, a really great topic. So in the same way that we've all seen, you know, tools like ChatGPT in the news over the last, um, the last few months, um, you know what fraudsters have been seeing that too. And I, you can bet that they've started using it too. I've noticed it in my own inbox. Right. that I'm now getting spam that I can tell has been written by an artificial intelligence bot. Um, and in fact, recently at a conference, um, I helped prepare a, a talk for, for one of my colleagues. We, we actually had, um, <laughs> we had, we had we played around with some of these AI tools online and we actually had um, we I fed it a uh, one of these classic Bitcoin scam emails that we all get. Right. And I had it rewrite it in the style of David Attenborough of David Attenborough talking. And then I then took that text and fed it into a second AI bot, okay, which then read it to me using David Attenborough's voice, okay? So it was incredibly realistic, right? So I had had David Attenborough trying to convince people to, you know, buy Bitcoins through a particular app, okay? That was probably a scam. I I never tried it. But the point is, is that if you can do this with, you know, David Attenborough's voice today, um, you know, somebody might take this recording of this podcast and use it to analyze my voice and then call my wife or my mother or, you know, and have me asking them to send money. Right. Um, And it's going to sound just like me and it's going to talk just like me. It's going to have the same cadence that my voice has. It's going to use the same vocabulary that I typically use when I talk. And so in the same way that, you know, uh, that, that we, that we've learning, we, we have been learning to use these AI bots fraudsters are too. Um, and so over time, I believe that preventing fraud is going to become more challenging. It's going to have to rely upon uh, some of these tools as well, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, and so on and so forth. But I think that's one of the key things that's coming up, both as a political and economic topic in payments over the next uh, the next few years. And last but not least, I guess the third, the third major thing I would, I, would, I would mention are just the, com- the competitive pressures in this industry are, are unrelenting um one of the major trends over the last 10 years has been the entrance of of non-banks into the into the payments value chain and i i think that that will continue um, in fact i know it will continue in fact it's being encouraged by politicians in in multiple countries um and it's bringing a number of benefits as well you know competition in and of itself is a good thing It cr- it promotes innovation um, it promotes efficiency. It promotes a better experience for users, um, whether corporates or consumers. Um, and in order for us to respond to those pressures, right, uh, as an industry, um, we need to we need to push ourselves even further. And I see that happening. Um, and I'm, you know, it's one of the things that makes me really proud to to be to be a part of this industry and 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 to work with so many great people. Is that people care about what they do. And they're all all—they're often interested, or almost all of them are interested in, in pushing the envelope further out.
0: What a perfect ending. Thank you so much. That was great. Um, that's going to be a wrap for this episode of the Payments Podcast. Our topic has been a global view of real-time payments. And our guest has been Leo Lippis, founder of Lippis Advisors. Leo, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Join us next time wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Spotify, Apple, and SoundCloud. See you next time. from Bottom
1: Line Technologies.